Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapaniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, Jason. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Remember, you can always catch us on your favorite Catholic radio station, on the podcast, and on our YouTube channel. Or if you ever miss an episode, just go to our website. It's mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Jason, we've got a great conversation this week, kind of tying in with National School Choice Week and with Catholic Schools Week. So who are we speaking with? We are speaking with Jason Bedrick. He is a Harvard-trained scholar and researcher who works for EdChoice, one of the nation's premier advocacy and resources organizations for school choice. Um, He's going to be talking about his new study, Who's Afraid of School Choice? Comparing the rhetoric of school choice opponents with the actual reality of what happens when school choice programs are enacted. And for some, the evidence is going to be pretty surprising. And he's encouraging us to, quote, follow the empirical science. So it's going to be a great conversation, especially as we're uh, wrapping up National School Choice Week and heading into Catholic Schools Week. So it'll be good to hear what's actually happening out there and maybe see how we could start to move that direction in Minnesota. So everyone who's watching or listening, make sure to send us your discussion ideas. You can email us. The address is show at mncatholic.org and leave us a comment on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, or on Twitter. I'll be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined on the Bridge Builder by Jason Bedrick. He is Director of Policy for EdChoice. Previously, he served as a policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Jason has also served as a legislator in the New Hampshire House of Representatives and was an education policy research fellow at the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, which is a state-based think tank in New Hampshire. His writings appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, New York Post, National Review, National Affairs, and Education Next, among other publications. He received his master's degree in public policy from the JFK School of Government at Harvard, where he was a fellow at the Taubman Center for State and Local Government. Jason Bedricks, great to have you on the program today. Welcome to The Bridge Builder. Thank you so much for having me. What got you interested? You've got a great background and interest in state government. You were actually a legislator, and New Hampshire has the biggest state house, uh, if I'm correct about that. I think you represent like, what, four or 5,000 people or something like that? But About 3,300. Uh, yeah, that's 400 member house. That's a, it's really amazing for such a small state, but that's real constituent oriented politics. You, you got to know your neighbors and they know you. Tell us a little bit more about what got you interested in studying education issues generally and school choice issues specifically. You know, I'd, I'd always been interested in education. Uh, I was one of those kids who really loved school. I, I chose my parents well, and so they, uh, they were uh, able to afford to live in a community that had really good public schools, uh, although only through eighth grade. It was a very small town. We didn't have a high school. Uh, so although I'm not uh, Catholic, actually, I attended Catholic high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were able to afford to send me to a, a great Catholic high school. When I was in college, I was taking a class on on political science and did a report on how to improve education in New Hampshire. And it's when I learned about the voucher idea uh, from Milton Friedman. And Mm -hmm. uh, it just seemed to me that if if America's promise is a quality of opportunity, it requires that every single child has access to a quality education. But if you're assigning kids to schools based on the home that their parents happen to be able to afford, 
uh, it really means that uh, you have a, a situation where there are haves and have nots. And I wanted every child to have the same sort of educational opportunity that I did. We always like to say here in Minnesota, public education dollars should follow students and not systems. How did we get to this point in public education being so situated on geographical area that your educational destiny seems to be based on your zip code and your parents' socioeconomic status? Well, actually, to a, to a great extent, it came out of opposition to Catholic education. Actually, if you look at the, in the, in the early going back all the way to the, you know, the Revolutionary War period, it was quite common for states to fund private education, specifically religious education. But with the rise of Catholic immigration, there were Protestant fears of Catholics bringing with them rum, Romanism, and rebellion. And so they decided, well, you know what, instead we'll have these common schools. Now, the common schools were really non-denominational Protestant schools, de facto, right? They taught the the King James Bible, Protestant version of the Bible. They led children in non-denominational Protestant prayer. And this was fine for most Episcopalians, Congregationalists, and what have you, but not really for the Catholics and to a lesser extent Lutherans who started their own schools. And they very reasonably said, hey, look, we're funding your Protestant school. The tax dollars should should also follow us to, to our schools. But the Protestant establishment said, no, 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 no. Your schools are sectarian. Ours are open to everybody. And we would be happy to take your children and Protestantize them, uh, you know, or Americanize them, which they used uh, interchangeably, at our schools. So then you have this sweep across the nation, not only of the rise of common schools, but also of these things called the Blaine Amendments, which was actually James Blaine, who was a senator from the state of Maine, uh, who was a nativist, uh, part of the Know Nothing Party originally. Although he failed to amend the U.S. Constitution, they, they amended the constitutions in about 40 states to say that no public dollars can go to sectarian schools, which meant, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Catholic. But it looks like the Supreme Court is actually starting to undo that. Uh, you can't fund these schools directly, as is appropriate, but uh, the Supreme Court says if you are going to fund private education, that it is discriminatory to exclude religious institutions. And so families in more and more states have these options now. You know, we asked you on, Jason, because you're an author of an important new study, I think, called entitled Who's Afraid of School Choice? Tell us about what you set out to do in that study and and what you uncovered. Sure. Well, you know, the most common argument against school choice that we hear is that it's going to destroy the public school system. Actually, even at the beginning of the report, we have a whole bunch of quotes going back 10, 20, 30 years um, where there are people making predictions that if you pass this bill, it's going to destroy the public school system in our state. And I said, well, you know, that was a legitimate concern 30 years ago, right? I mean, the idea was, well, you know, if, if all the kids are going or most of the kids are going to this school system now, and now we have vouchers, well, maybe it's the families that are most interested in education who have on net the best students that are going to take the vouchers and they're going to leave. They're going to go to private ed- education. And now the public school has harder to teach kids on average and less resources to teach them. So the quality of the school is going to decline. That means more students are going to leave. And you're going to have this sort of death spiral and the whole system's going to collapse. So that, you know, that's a legitimate concern 30 years ago, but now we've got a whole bunch of states that have decades of experience with school choice. So what have we seen now, you know, if we're going to make predictions, well, let's look at the states that actually have it 
And so what the report does is it goes through all the data in the five states that have the oldest and, and largest school choice programs. So that's Arizona, Florida, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And what it finds is actually test scores are up and that all the best research we have shows improvement. So, you know, generally speaking, opponents say or argue or have argued for 30 years that more school choice will destroy public education. Why do they say that? What is it about creating choice programs that's going to harm public education and giving people more options? The reality is obviously that that it doesn't. And so at, at this point, I think most of the people making the argument, they know better. So at this point, I think they're just making it a pretextual case. But frankly, I think it shows an, an incredible lack of faith in the public school system. Because again, the fear is, well, we can't really compete. If we were in a system where parents had more choice, parents would send their kids somewhere else and our system simply can't compete. And actually, they should have more faith in their school system because it seems that the opposite is true. When you increase choice and competition, the public schools then have a much stronger incentive to meet the needs of families and to improve their performance. And what we actually find is that they do exactly that. They do improve their performance. And by the way, we see this just in, you know, in pretty much every other sector, right? If you have a monopolistic sector, service is usually pretty poor. But when the end user, the consumer, has a bunch of options, it forces firms to compete and up their game. You mentioned five states that have the most robust choice programs. What has happened to public schools? And just pick one of those states and just give us a little snapshot of what's happened to public schools and public school performance as school choice programs have grown in that state. Sure. Well, I think one state we should look at is Florida. Florida is the largest school choice program in the country. Uh, It's the uh, Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program. You've got more than uh, 100,000 low-income students participating in the program. And they have the second most students participating in a school choice program per capita in the country. What you have seen over the last 25 years is a tremendous improvement in the performance of the public schools in that state. A part of it is due to competition, surely. Part of it is also just students finding the right fit. They have a longitudinal study that one of the universities, I think it's Florida State University, but one of the universities might be University of Florida. One of the universities does every single year, looks at the data, and over and over what they find is not creaming, meaning not that the top students are leaving. If you look at the students who are leaving and you compare them to their demographic peers, they are performing lower on average when they leave their public school and enter the program. So what's really going on? Families who have students that are performing well in the public school system tend to leave their children in that system. It's the ones who their child is not doing well in that system that they're looking for something else. And that doesn't mean these are the, you know, quote unquote, dumb kids, right? It just means these are the kids that are not well served in the system. They're not the right fit. And then they go to a different school system. And we find that after only a few years of uh, receiving a scholarship and going to a private school, they're performing at the national average, which means that they are outperforming their demographic peers since they are, it's a program that's limited to low income families. We like to say here when we propose school choice programs, if you like your public school, you can keep it. If it's serving you well, 
fantastic. That's that's great. But for children who aren't cookie cutter, who aren't clones and who have different needs, gifts, backgrounds, an opportunity to go to a non-public school or homeschool or a charter school or whatever can be a great boon to them. So that's an, that's an important point. Why is it that opponents of school choice, in your opinion, still persist in their opposition despite uh, the plain facts of 30 years of data about choice programs in, in states such as Indiana and Arizona? It essentially comes down, I think, to self-interest. Any organization that has a monopoly wants to maintain that monopoly and does not want competition. And so they have an army of lobbyists that they hire to go down to the state capitol and raise all sorts of concerns and fears and keep the system the way that it is. But I think what the important thing for legislators to know is that these are just a bunch of chicken littles and the sky is not going to fall. The sky has not fallen in any of the states that have school choice. You know, they can't even point to school systems that have closed down, you know, which is one of the, well, you know, you should see maybe in Indianapolis or Phoenix or Tallahassee or something, right? You would expect that some school district somewhere would have closed down. No, all the public schools are still working. Uh, All the evidence shows that on average, they are performing better than they were before. And I think in your report, it even says that far from decreasing public school funding, even in states with robust choice programs has continued to increase. Is that correct? That is correct. One of the concerns they say, well, there's going to be less money. But actually, if you look at it on a per pupil basis, since 2002, every single one of those states has increased their funding after you account for inflation. So funding is still up. Really, school choice in all of these states is just a drop in the bucket compared to what they spend. If you look at it on a per pupil basis across the entire state, uh, not just those participating in the program, but across the entire state, there isn't a single state that they're spending more than $400 per pupil on the school choice program. Again, to clarify, in some states, they're getting you know $7,000 scholarships, but I'm talking if you compare all of the spending on the school choice program and, and flatten it out across the entire state, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the you know ten dollars to $16,000 that they're spending per pupil at the public schools. We're speaking with Jason Bedrick. He is Director of Policy for EdChoice, a national think tank and educational resource on school choice programs, formerly known as the Friedman Foundation. Jason, you know, we always want to put our opponents' arguments in the best light. That's a responsibility of charity. So, you know, no one thinks that 15 or 20 or $30 million incremental school choice program within an overall education budget, for example, in Minnesota of about 20 billion, no one really thinks that is going to really harm public education. But I think what they're arguing is that this is the slippery slope to greater choice programs like universal education savings accounts, which we favor, by the way. Um, And that if you did that, that would really uh, undermine public education. Is that is that really what you think, besides the monopolistic behavior, which we can stipulate, is that sort of the, the core of their argument? And if, if that is the case, if we had robust programs like that, that were universally applicable and not targeted to specific uh, constituencies, do they have cause for fears about public education, the enterprise of public education long-term? I don't think they do, because you can look to other states, other countries, you can look throughout Europe, Canada, they have much more robust school choice options than we have here. And they're doing better than we are academically, and they're spending a lot less per pupil than we are. If you look at the PISA, which is an international test, we rank, you know, in the 30s 
And like I said, it's not because of spending, because outside of a few places like Luxembourg, we spend way more per pupil than these other countries. We are much wealthier than they are, despite having fewer options. So I think that the concerns are entirely unfounded. Could it be the problem that we are stuck in a public education paradigm that equates public education with government schools and that we need to think more broadly that public education means really the education of the public as opposed to putting them in factory schools? I think that's 100% correct. You know, we, we do conflate a particular delivery model with public education. And I think we have to think much more expansively. You know, each state's constitution says that they have to fund a, a public education for students. But I think Milton Friedman's insight was that even if you have a compelling interest in providing access to a quality education for every single child, it doesn't follow from that, that the government should be the one to run those institutions. That instead, what you could do is have a government subsidy to make sure that there is a quality of access, but then have the market provide a more diverse array of options and also higher quality options and options, frankly, that, um, you know, include a full, robust religious education, which is something that the public school system cannot do, but is an important part of the fabric of our society. So I think you would have a much more free and pluralistic system that matches our society, which is supposed to favor freedom and pluralism, if you had a system of educational choice. Jason, in the 30 years since choice programs began being proposed, the creation of the Milwaukee and the Cleveland voucher programs and other things like that, have any of the arguments that were raised at the beginning by choice opponents, have those proven correct in any way? No, they have, uh, they have not proven correct. And I should note that in our, in our study, we look at one particular set of those claims, and that is just the ones that uh, look at performance. But man, when we were doing the research on this, there were a wide variety of other claims. Perhaps most famously, there was a professor, uh, David Berliner at Arizona State University, who at a legislative hearing predicted that you would have Balkan-style ethnic cleansing. You know, and again, this is not some lunatic. This is a, a university professor, but he was making this, frankly, ludicrous claim. And there were all sorts of other claims like that, too. But no, what we have not seen the sky fall. And one of the most unfortunate things is we have not even seen the opponents change their rhetoric. When we surveyed the different states this past year that were looking at school choice programs, we saw all the same sort of arguments. This is the final nail in the coffin of public education. A legislator from, I think it was Arkansas, said that, no, it's Kentucky. Uh, he said public education uh, has its head inside a guillotine ready to have its head chopped off. That was for a tax credit ESA that fewer than 1% of students in the state would be able to benefit from. So no, we have not seen the predictions come true, nor have we seen opponents modify their rhetoric based on the evidence. And our experience in here in Minnesota has been just that over the years, that no matter how small a program we offer or propose or target to particular populations, such as education savings accounts for kids with disabilities, all the rhetoric, uh, the same inflammatory rhetoric, slippery slope rhetoric, it all comes out. So, you know, therefore, if they're going to call everything vouchers, we might as well propose something big and bold like education savings accounts. And that's what we're doing here in Minnesota. One argument against school choice is that, well, parents, if they're given a choice, they might make the wrong choice. How do you respond to that? 
Well, they might, but we trust families on net because they love their children the most and they have the, the strongest interest in, in making sure that their children get what they need. There is no perfect system, right? We do see parents who are abusive or neglectful. That's true. But we have to compare the existing system against reasonable alternatives, not against some imagined ideal. The public school system, if it were run by angels, I'm sure would be phenomenal, but it is not. And so the question really is not, should we have a system where everybody is assigned to a school based on geography versus a system of, uh, that, that is you know, some imagined ideal or vice versa? You can't say, well, school choice, parents are going to make decisions, but the public school system is perfect because it's not. So you have to look at reality versus reality. And the reality is that on net, parents do make better decisions for their children. If they to go through the hassle of pulling their child out of the existing public school, which is probably geographically convenient, and put their child in a different education spot or create an education plan for them, it's hard to believe that it could be worse than what they're already getting if they're already feeling underserved. That's true. The other thing, too, that we talk about is that there are guardrails around the choices uh, that parents can make with these programs. I mean, in the Minnesota, the bills that have been proposed here with regard to education savings accounts, they incorporate, you know, eligible schools have to be, you know, accredited. They have to employ nationally norm tested and things like that, too. So even then, there are still guardrails around uh, some of the choices that folks can make. And again, if people are feeling underserved, it seems it's hard to be in a, end up in a worse spot than they already are. Right. And look, even uh, very well-informed, uh, well-intentioned parents or bureaucrats for that matter are going to make mistakes. Sometimes a school might work for your oldest child, uh, but for your younger child, it, it's just not, not the right fit and you need to make a change and put them somewhere else. Freedom can be a perilous thing, but overall the system, it seems, of empowering parents who are, as we say in the Catholic world, are the first educators of their children is the principled thing to do. And we need to empower parents to do just that. Jason, what else do people need to know about your study? What other findings can you leave us with or insights that uh, are particularly compelling of the study? Who's afraid of school choice? As I mentioned, uh, the last part of the report, we do a survey of the level of uh, rhetorical intensity in the school choice debates in the last year. And so we look at five states that passed the school choice program, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, New Hampshire, and West Virginia. Now, two of those states passed really robust programs. New Hampshire has uh, an education savings account, and I should clarify for the viewers or, or listeners, an education savings account is sort of like a voucher, except instead of just being able to use it for private school tuition, you can use it for tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, special needs therapy, and a wide variety of other options. In New Hampshire, they passed a bill that provides an education savings account for about a third of students in the state. And if you're eligible, then you are also funded. You receive a scholarship. In West Virginia, their HOPE scholarship program is available to every child who is either switching out of a public school or entering kindergarten. So that's 93% of kids in the state are both eligible and funded. On the other hand, Arkansas, Kentucky, and Missouri all had school choice programs that about 40 to 50% of kids were eligible for, but there was only funding available for fewer than 1% of kids in the state. In Arkansas, it's fewer than 0.1% of kids in the state. And so the question we had was, does the level of rhetorical intensity of school choice opponents vary 
based on the size and scope of the policy, right? You might expect in West Virginia, they're going to be talking about this is the end of public education as we know it. Whereas in Arkansas, fewer than 1% of kids are participating. Maybe they're going to moderate their rhetoric. So we did a, a scale of uh, 1 to 11, 1 to 10, but we added 11 in the spirit of spinal tap. You know, this goes to 11. That's right. So a 10 was for catastrophic rhetoric. 11 was for apocalyptic rhetoric. And uh, well what done. We found, <laughs> thank you. Uh, what we found was that the average was an eight, which was severe concern. But West Virginia was an eight. And every state was pretty close to that. New Hampshire was 7.6, but Missouri and Arkansas were both above an eight, 8.3 and Arkansas 8.6. So, and in every single one of those states, we found somebody who turned things up to 11. The governor of Kentucky said this was the end of public education. Somebody, and when I say somebody, I'm talking about policymakers, either you know the governor or legislators, district school officials or lobbyists representing their groups, special interest groups, or commentators like op-ed writers or, or editorials. Somebody in each state turned it all the way up to 11. So we didn't find any difference rhetorically. And so what I think that says to legislators who are considering a school choice proposal, sometimes they feel a temptation. Well, you know what? I, I would love to be able to provide educational choice to every child in the state, but I don't want people to say mean things about me and mean things about my bill. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to moderate it. I'm only going to make it for kids with special needs, or I'm only going to make it for the most disadvantaged kids, or we're going to put a cap on it so that only a thousand kids can participate. Don't expect that any of these uh, reforms to reduce the size and scope of the bill are actually going to get opponents to moderate their language. It won't. So again, don't listen to the chicken littles. There's no evidence that the sky is falling and they're going to squawk no matter what. So you may as well go big, go bold and try to provide every single child with access to a quality education. Amen. Jason Vedrick, that is outstanding. I don't pretend to be an impartial journalist in this discussion. School choice is an imperative. And Ed Choice, the organization, and Jason Vedrick are outstanding advocates and resources to those trying to enact school choice programs. Jason Vedrick, where can people go to find more about your studies and research and Ed Choice more generally? Well, they can follow us on Twitter at Ed Choice, or I'm at Jason Vedrick, and uh, at our website, edchoice.org. Wonderful. Jason Bedrick of EdChoice, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our practical tip of the week. Welcome back to the Bridge Builder, where we help you live your faith in public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and now it's time to turn to our producer, Kit Sapiniak, who's going to provide us with the practical tip of the week. Yeah, so given that National School Choice Week is just wrapping up and Catholic Schools Week is getting underway, it is the perfect time to learn more about school choice efforts right here in Minnesota and how you can become an advocate or a better advocate for parents and for students. So we really want to encourage all of our listeners, all of our viewers out there to visit our partners over at Opportunity for All Kids or OAK. Their website is oakmn.org. Again, that's oakmn.org. There you can check out some of the great videos and other resources that they have and get signed up for their email updates and their alerts to stay in the know about opportunities to be an advocate right here in Minnesota, opportunities to learn more about school choice. 
especially with the legislative session getting underway, you want to be the first to know about how you can make your voice heard on these issues. Jason, maybe you can tell us a bit more about the work being done by Oak and other school choice advocates this session, maybe what our Catholic school parents should have on their radar. The reality is, is that parents are the first educators of their children and rather being forced to send their child to a school that isn't serving their needs, where they're treated like one number among many, it's a one size fits all product. We need to rethink public education. And that certainly can include public schools. If they're working for people, great. But at the same time, those public education dollars need to follow students and not systems. It's really imperative that we create more opportunities for kids, especially as so many kids are being underserved. There's persistent and ongoing achievement gaps between white students and students of color here in Minnesota. That needs to be remedied. No one should be left behind because of their zip code or their socioeconomic status. Parents have all kinds of concerns about curriculum and what's being taught in schools. And of course, many schools and educators have abandoned students during COVID-19 and people are frustrated by that as well. So more and more, the reasons come out every day why we need more school choice, but we also need to make that happen at the legislature. An opportunity for all kids is a platform for people to join and engage and be a part of that movement for more school choice in Minnesota. Again, that website is opportunityforallkids.org. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in again this week. If you're listening on the radio, make sure to also catch us on your favorite podcast app or tune into our YouTube channel for all of our extended conversations. While you're there, make sure to subscribe so that you'll be alerted to all of our newest podcast episodes. Send us an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org. And you can always catch up on past episodes by going to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest and a practical tip for you to build bridges between faith and public life. Jason Atkins of Rikitsipiniak, the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening and blessings on your day.